Would you bow with me for a moment? Father, we thank you for uh, the beautiful truths that were just sung in that song, that whatever the sea brings by way of storm or wave or wind, that it can be well with us in Christ. So we thank you for that truth. We pray that we would cling to that. We ask that you would teach us from your word uh, to do that because it doesn't come natural. So we lean on you. We ask you for your grace through your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you for having me. It's been some time. Uh, uh, I'm actually returning a favor. A couple of years ago when I was on sabbatical, actually both Matt and Mike uh, covered for me. So I commend you for uh, providing your pastor and his family a sabbatical. That's, that's a great thing for him to get recharged and come back with energy to, to continue to minister to, to you all. I also have a quick apology to make before we dive in. As soon as we're done, as soon as I'm done, I have to grab my things and, and, and scoot out. And I hate to do that, uh, but I have to meet with a missionary before he skips out of town. And he's covering for me while I'm here covering for Mike. So a lot of moving pieces going on for us to make it work, but it's, it's, it's working. It's good. Um, I was asked to talk about God's sovereignty in times of peace. And we're going to address peace, but to get there, I want to talk about joy because biblically they're connected. Now, in Christian literature, there's no shortage of books on titles like How to Find Joy. Maybe at home, if you look on your nightstand or your bookshelf, you might see a devotional titled something like Seven Steps to Greater Happiness. Uh, These books are how-to books on how to find joy, how to discover joy so that it can be well with your soul when a storm hits your life. What I submit to you is that joy will never be found no matter how much you scratch for it or scrape for it and look for it. You can't find joy. And the reason why you can't find joy is because joy is not something you find. Joy is not even something you have. Joy is something you do. And we're going to find that in Philippians 4. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. A letter from Paul. He's writing from a jail cell. And this letter is punctuated with joy throughout the entire epistle. When you get to chapter 4. If you'll find it with me there in chapter 4, we're looking at just a few verses, 4 through 7. I want to read just verse 4 to start. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Now notice he doesn't say, now go and find joy, guys. Go look for it. He doesn't say, here's three steps to finally unlock the safe, mark joy, to crack the code, to finally discover joy in your life. Here's how you do it. No, he says, do it. He uses the verb form of joy to say, rejoice. Joy is the noun and rejoice is the verb, right? Joy is something you do. 
You rejoice. Do it. He anticipates our sort of resistance to that. And so he repeats it. Now, he didn't have a word processor. He's, he's dipping ink. He's, he's low on parchments. You remember other pages? He's like, please tell dude to bring me parchments. I'm low on parchment. This stuff isn't everywhere. He couldn't go to Staples. He's in jail. But he's going to use ink to write it again. I tell you, rejoice. Now, the emphasis here is doing it in the difficult times. Why do I know that? I know that because you wouldn't need to command it if we only rejoiced in the good times. Everybody does that. When you're having fun, you don't have to be told to rejoice. When things are going well, you don't have to be told to rejoice. It's when you're in jail. It's when your faith is being challenged. It's when it's hard to be a Christian that you need to be told to rejoice. So it's a command. Rejoice. And again I will say, rejoice. But that middle piece there in between the repetition is key. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, he wouldn't even need to be, we wouldn't even need this verse if it was rejoice in the Lord sometimes. Rejoice in the Lord when you feel like it. Rejoice in the Lord when you woke up feeling good this morning. Rejoice in the Lord when you get a raise. But when you get fired, look, we understand. You don't rejoice in the Lord. Always. You're packing your stuff in that box and everyone else is giving you the weird looks. Why did you just get canned? And you're walking out of that building with your stuff and you don't know how you're going to get your next paycheck. Rejoice? You're leaving the doctor's office and you just got diagnosed with a major illness. Rejoice? Now, this isn't Paul just going off the rails here. James confirms this as soon as you open up his epistle. Count it all joy, brothers, when you experience trials of various kinds. Count it as joy when I have a trial? I give my life to Jesus, my family hates me now. Count it as joy? Rejoice. Always. So this is, this is news to someone who's not familiar with Christianity. This might be news to you and you've been a Christian for a little while. And your life is like a roller coaster. Sometimes you're, you have joy, sometimes you're down, sometimes you're up, and then you're down again. Because you're finding joy in circumstances. You see, you're still stuck in that mode of finding joy, not doing joy. And what Scripture tells us is, Don't look for joy coming to greet you on the horizon. Joy isn't some savior that's going to come and be your friend. Joy is something you do. Do it. And don't just do it when it's easy to do it. Do it when it's hard to do it. But if your joy is tethered to your job, your family, your friends, the weather, politics, your church, your pastor, who said hi to you this morning? Your joy is going to be up and down, up and down. just depends on what happened. But that's not what this says. This says rejoice always. That's a tough command to swallow. Rejoice always. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Verse 5, he says, let your reasonableness be known 
to everyone. Now your translation might say, let your gentleness be known to everyone. I kind of like that word better. Uh, it could be translated leniency. But, you know, they're just, the translators are just trying to make it easy for you to not scratch your head and, and put the Bible down and not want to continue reading it because it doesn't make sense. What, is, what does leniency have to do with anything? Well, it's because it's the lenient person that can rejoice. Because the lenient person recognizes things aren't always going to go my way, so I need to flex. I might have this job for a season. I might have this job for a long time. I might, I might need to move. A person is going to disappoint me. I'm going to get betrayed sometimes. That doesn't mean I stop making friendships. Be lenient. Some people are going to disappoint you. Some people are going to surprise you in a good way. Be lenient and flex. See, that's the gentleness he's talking about. He's not talking about, adopt a voice like this and just be gentle to everyone. That's not what he's talking about. He's not saying, never have a firm word to say to someone. He's not saying that. The gentleness he's talking about is your approach to life. Be reasonable. You're not always going to have a great time at church. Every sermon isn't always going to make you go, that was my favorite. Every person you meet isn't going to be completely lovable. Man, I love everyone in this world. Everyone is so awesome. Be reasonable. Be lenient. Be flexible. Sometimes you're going to meet a jerk. And guess what? Sometimes you're a jerk. (laughs) Be lenient. Be flexible. Instead of being rigid. And it's the rigid person that's going to go, everything has to go my way, and anything that doesn't go my way, I can't rejoice. And he's saying, you can't do it. If you're going to be a person that rejoices, you have to be a person that doesn't find your joy in circumstances. The rigid person wants everything to go a certain way. The gentle person is going to look. Things are going to go different ways, and no matter which way it goes, in whatever circumstance I am, I'm going to be content there. He just finished teaching that in this passage. Rejoice in the Lord all the time. Again, I'll say rejoice. Let your reasonableness, your gentleness be known to everyone. Even the bad guys, even the enemies, even the naysayers, even the backbiters, even the gossipers. Let your flexibility be known to them. As we're looking at this, it's real easy for me to, it's real easy for me to say it. It's an it's a easy sermon to preach. Rejoice, guys. Go home and rejoice. No matter what your circumstances, rejoice. And you might be sitting there going, you don't know my circumstances. That's true. You don't know mine either. Sermons are easy. It's leaving these doors and doing it. So he gives us a foundation without which we can't do it. We need a proper foundation to do it because our foundations are terrible. (laughs) How well my day is going, that's my foundation. That's terrible. How good are things between my spouse and I right now? Oh, real good. Okay, I'm going to rejoice. Bad foundation. But he provides a foundation. The foundation can't be circumstances. I know, I'm speaking for myself, the foundation can't be me. How I wake up this morning. If who's based up on how I wake up in the morning, I'm never going to rejoice. (laughs) It's hard to face any day for me. It doesn't matter. if It it could be my birthday. It doesn't matter. I I just... It's hard to get up. 
And if it can't be based on circumstances because circumstances are always changing, and it can't be based on me because I'm always changing, what is it going to be based on? Look what he says at the end of verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Which is kind of a repeat because you already said that in the first opening line. Rejoice in what? In the Lord. Not in circumstances. Not in your feelings. Rejoice in the Lord. He's the one that doesn't change. So we can be flexible as to circumstances and we can be flexible as to different kinds of people because there's one inflexible thing in our life and that's the Lord. And if our joy is based on him, then joy reigns no matter what you're experiencing in your life. Rejoice in the Lord. But at the end of verse 5, the Lord is at hand or the Lord is near. Now, most Scholars, pastors, preachers believe that what he means when he says the Lord is near is that he's coming soon. That the Lord is coming. And I want to kind of take the minority route, okay, and say I, I don't think that's what he's getting at here. Now the reason why they say that is because most of the times in the New Testament when you see the phrase at hand, it means time-wise. Okay, lunch is at hand. I'm always thinking that. I'm always bugging my wife. Isn't dinner at hand? I don't use those words. I'm going to start, though. That's pretty good. Is dinner near at nigh? No. It usually means time-wise, something is close. And at the end of chapter 3, Paul just finished talking about this coming Savior that we long for and we await. So I see it. It makes sense. But rather than going up back to chapter 3 like five verses ago, I want to use it the way the Old Testament uses it, which is more often that something is close proximity-wise, near. Not coming, but close. And the reason why I see that is because the next line he says, pray, guys. Now, do we believe that the more you pray, the faster Jesus returns? Gabriel's got his mouth close to the trumpet, and we just pray a little, couple more prayers. Oh, oh, oh. He's going to blow the trumpet. We don't believe that, right? What he's saying is you pray because God is close. He's not far. He's not distant. He's near. That's what we have trouble believing. See, your, your understanding of God's nearness and what that nearness means will regulate your ability to rejoice. If you have a low view of his lordship over things and how near and imminent he is in this world doing things and interacting, if you have a low view of that, then you're going to have a low reason to rejoice. If you have a robust view of God's governance and interference and things and putting his hand over things. What's the big word that we use for that? Sovereignty. Low view of sovereignty. Inability to rejoice. High view, robust, mature view of God's sovereignty will feed your rejoicing. He connects it here. Rejoice in the Lord. What what kind of Lord? A Lord that's sometimes there? A Lord that's far away? No, a Lord that's at hand and reigns. A few weeks ago, I would have told you I never met a deist. But then I did. I started this book club at my library, not just 
to be a nerd. <laughs> I want to reach out to people. I spend too much time with church people. Right? I'm always at church, and, I'm, and I'm, I, love, I love church, but I want to spend more time with people who don't know the Lord, and, and they don't know the gospel. I want to connect with them. I want to talk with them. But I'm not really the type to just wander up and down the street with a megaphone and just, like, blasting, you know. I'm not saying don't do that. I'm just saying that's hard for me. I said, I'm going to start a book club. We're going to read secular books, and I'm going to connect these secular books to their lives and ask questions and, and, try, to, and try to get them talking about faith and morality and things like that. So we started going. And this one guy in particular, real hard-nosed, cusses like crazy, you know, um, thinks he knows everything. He likes to, you know, bash pastors and this kind of thing. And I said, hey, man, let's do dinner. Let's talk about faith. I want to hear your story. Yeah, that's great. So we go to dinner. He starts telling his story, and he tells me he believes in God. I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, there's no way this guy believes in God. I, I had him pegged as a, as, a, as a harsh, you know, atheist. No, he says, I believe in God. I just believe that he doesn't interfere. That's a deist. A deist believes that God spun the world into existence and just is letting it, it's just kind of letting it go. Why does he say that? Because in his mind, he wants to protect the fact that God is loving, but he looks around him and sees all this messed up stuff happening. So he has, to, he has to try to get these two things to jive, that God is a loving God, yet the world is out of control with pain and tragedy and difficult circumstances. So how does he put the two together? The way he puts the two together is that God created everything, but he's uninvolved. And that's why these things happen. So why is my uncle dying of cancer? Well, because the world is a messed up place and God kind of stepped back and he's like, oh, he's saddened by it, but he already made a deal with himself that he won't interfere. He was the first deist I ever met, but he's not the first semi-deist I ever met. Because I've met so many Christians that adopt a semi-deistic view to reconcile the same thing that this guy's reconciling. You look around you and you see messed up stuff, and how do you explain it? If somebody asked you, why does God allow all this stuff, God does all this stuff, do you go, well, look, hey, we sin, we do stuff, we messed everything up, and God's up there like, you know, hey, look, you did it. That's low sovereignty. I suggest to you, the person that uses constant free will and everyone does it, it's all our fault to defend God's love, has a life whose rejoicing looks like this. Because the Lord is not here. He's not near. He's not at hand. He's way in the back somewhere going, what what do you want me to do? I spun it into existence. You guys ate the fruit. You choose bad boyfriends. You chose a bad wife. You didn't raise your kids right. You chose that job. I didn't choose that job. You didn't work hard enough. What do you want me to do? Why should I supply you with another job? You did it. Guys, that's, a, that's deism. So what I want to do is take a quick uh, excursus, a timeout, hit pause on this passage I want to walk you through a couple other passages to beef up your understanding of what Paul means when he says God is the Lord and that he's near. You could think of uh, several Proverbs that help, in this, help us 
in this regard. Um, I think we might have them up on the screen for you, but I'm going to walk you through some of these really quickly. The first one is probably a pretty familiar one, Proverbs 19.21. Proverbs 19, verse 21. Here's what it says. Now listen to this. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Hey, it even rhymes. <laughs> Not intentionally. It wasn't originally written in English. But that might help you memorize it, right? Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. What does that mean? You make plans, don't you? You make plans on where to live. You make plans on where to work. You make plans on what to do at work. You make plans for your kids. You make plans for your summer vacation. You can do a lot of planning, but at the end of the day, whatever was done... That was the plan that the Lord established. Isn't that what it says? Now, the Bible's not saying don't make plans. Just go, I don't know what I'm going to do. God establishes everything, so I'm just going to walk around and see what happens. No, there's a lot of other Proverbs that, in my translation, just say, don't be dumb. (laughs) Okay? Make your plans, but don't make your plans rigidly. Make your plans reasonably. Be gentle. As to your plans. It has to go like this. You hit traffic. You flip a lid. Okay. Dad, I have to use the bathroom. Got to pull over. We're off schedule. Relax, dude. It's nice to have plans, but at the end of the day, God has a purpose. Now listen. Plans, plural. Purpose, singular. You have lots of plans, plural, God has one. Some of your plans happen, some of them don't. It's usually a mixture. 80% of your plan happened the way you thought it would, and 20%. And there's a lot of plans, plural. Some fail, some pass. God, one purpose. And it happens every single time. That's what it says. Is that low sovereignty or high sovereignty? That's, that's pretty high. That's, that's at the ceiling. I don't know what else, what, what else can the Bible verse say. Now we might say, now Proverbs, aren't those just generalisms? They're not always true. When it applies to human life circumstances, yes. When it's applied to God, no. Let's look at another one. Proverbs 16. Proverbs 16. There's three of them here. I'm going to go backwards on them. Well, kind of back and Yeah, backwards. Verse 33. Chapter 20, uh, 16, Proverbs 16, verse 33. This, this blows my mind, guys. Listen. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. You know what lots are? Remember, they're like, we don't know who should be the next apostle. Let's cast, let's cast lots. <laughs> it's their ancient version of dice. So... Later today, after your dinner, you say, hey, family, let's play a game. And you play a game, and you pull out, and you pull out Settlers of Catan, right? That's a good game. And you take those dice, and you roll them. The number that comes up right there, God established that. You roll the dice, but it's every decision, not in the decisions where it counts. If you're rolling dice to choose an elder, don't do that. That's not why that's an act. But it's every decision 
It's from the Lord. In fact, in the olden days, that's why they cast lots to decide something like the next apostle, because they had that high view of sovereignty. We believe in chance. Good luck. Don't say that. God bless you. Say that. Because there is no luck. Luck is the atheist's God replacement for Yahweh. They don't have anything else. They cast lots and it was just molecules bouncing. But we see it as God's decision. Let's look at a couple more. Verse 9, same chapter. Verse 9. Proverbs 16, 9. The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Which way you go and how you do it, God establishes that way. So, what brand of toothpaste do you use? God chose that. This morning, when you opened your closet and you saw a red shirt and a blue shirt and you wanted to decide between red and blue, God chose that color. Now, in our human experience, it seems like we're the ones choosing it. But as we look back, God was approving down to the detail, the color of your shirt, the toothpaste you use, how many lights you hit when you got here on your way, what kind of car you drive. He's sovereign. Even down to our very words. Look at verse 1. Proverbs 16.1, the plans of the heart belong to a man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. In your heart, you want to do something, you want to say something, so in your mind, you figure out how you want to say it. By the time it works its way out of your mouth, oops, it's the way God wanted you to say it. I, I can't think of any higher way, any, any greater way to emphasize God's absolute sovereignty, guys. He reigns fully. Now, this doesn't mean that he commits sin. You read back in Exodus, and he promised that he would harden Pharaoh's heart. Now, did he take an innocent, cute little heart? Oh, Pharaoh, the beautiful lamb that walks around loving on people. And then God says, no, you know, hardened heart now. And you're not going to let my people go. No, his heart was already hard. Now, unless you and I go, idiot Pharaoh, his heart was already hard. He got what's coming to him. We all have hard hearts. So when God goes like this, we do a lot of stupid stuff. And anything we do that's any good, it's because he's taking the wheel and moving us out of the oncoming traffic. And he doesn't owe us that. That's called grace. He can let the world completely destroy itself. But he doesn't. My response to that deist over dinner was that if God is loving, he has to interfere. He asked me, do you believe the Bible is concrete? I said, what do you mean? He said, like everything's true in it? I said, yeah. He goes, like uh, Noah with a big old boat. He didn't say old. He, he likes to cuss. He, you, think he, you, think he put, you think he put animals all in this big boat? I said, Yes. Do you? He says, no. I said, can he? He says, no. I said, oh, interesting. And he goes, well, yes, he can, but he wouldn't. He wouldn't do that. And I said, Michael, if God is loving, he has to interfere. 
It's an unloving God to go, here you guys are destroying yourselves, and I'm just going to back up and not do anything about it. That's the unloving God. We're not to be deists. Last verse in Proverbs, I promise. Chapter 21, verse 1. Chapter 21, verse 1, and then we'll just pop back to Philippians just for a few minutes. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. The king's heart, the president's heart, is a stream of water. And God creates dams and blockages to make that water flow where he wants it to go. Which king? doesn't matter. Wait, you mean, you, mean, you mean Christian kings? No, any king. Over these recent elections, when Trump was elected, a lot of his supporters said, see, that was God. God made sure that Trump got elected. And then I have a lot of friends that are like Trump haters. They're like, no, no. And I'm like, uh, Yes. But then I look at the Trump supporters and I go, how about when Obama was elected twice? Did God put him there? Well, 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 which one is it? Now that doesn't mean God is, that's God's man. God is going to use the president. He is going to use the president. That doesn't mean God approves everything. But he's a stream of water. So, did you cast your ballot frustrated? we got to get this vote to go right. Otherwise, the nation is going to turn to pot and it's going to go crazy. And we got to get in. You're calling your friends. Who are you voting for? Who are you voting for? Now, this might, I might be kind of exaggerated on the other end of it, but I cast my ballot kind of like, um, yeah. Because God is over all this stuff. And I thought about it and I did research and I looked into it, but my heart wasn't beating. I didn't, I didn't waste, I didn't lose a bunch of Facebook friends over it, you know. I just want to talk about the gospel, man. Look back at Philippians again. Philippians 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. What kind of Lord? The Psalm 104 Lord. I'm not, we're not going to go there. Look it up on your own time. Write it down yourself. Psalm 104. Every blade of grass that pushes its way up out of the earth, God pushed that blade of grass up. When an animal is out on the hunt and he's looking and he's hungry for something to eat, on the days where he eats something, God fed that animal that day. On the day where he doesn't find anything, no matter how long he hunted, and the lion feels hungry and is going to go to bed hungry that night, it's because God said, nope, no snack tonight. Psalm 104. So he is over creation, he is over presidents, he is over the roll of dice, he's over your closet, he's over traffic. That's the Lord we rejoice in. So what do we do with a God like that? We pray. Verse 6, do not be anxious, which is the antithesis to rejoicing, an anxious person. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Not because he doesn't know them, but because he wants you to name it and say it and face it and take it and place it at his feet intentionally. To not just say, well, God's sovereign. He knows everything. Sure he does. But do you? 
He wants you to name those things and take it to him, dependent upon him because he's sovereign. Now you might go, if God is so sovereign and everything, even down to the dice, it's already taken care of, why pray? No, my friend, it's the opposite. If God is uninvolved, if God is not sovereign, if God doesn't do anything, why pray? You can pray all you want for your spouse to be saved. God's going to go, what do you want me to do? I I knitted him together in his mother's womb and I spun him into existence, but I don't interfere. It's when you have a high view of sovereignty that you can go, it doesn't matter how hard this person's heart is. It doesn't matter how difficult they are. It doesn't matter how many things they quote at me or how evil they are toward me. God is not beyond snapping that person awake. And so I can pray for that person to be saved because God is sovereign over hearts. He can harden them. He can soften them. But if God doesn't do that, if that's not his MO, and he steps back and he's not very sovereign, or he, at least he doesn't use his sovereignty, well, then why pray then? Because God's response is going to be, hey, what do you want me to do? He doesn't like me. I know he doesn't like you, but you can make him like you because you reign. That's the person who prays without anxiety. What's the result? Verse 7. There's the peace. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We don't sit around and wait for a season of peace. You make it into a season of peace. How do you do that? You rejoice in it. And anything that tempts you to worry, tempts you to be anxious, you take that, put it in a box, push it over toward God, and let him deal with it. You're not pushing it to a God that kind of doesn't deal with things. You push it to a God who's concerned even with the flip of a coin. Because he's sovereign and because he reigns. Paul opens and closes this letter with promises that God is going to do it. You know, those verses that talk about um, he who started a good work in you is faithful to finish it. That's Philippians. Work out your fear, you work out your salvation with fear and trembling because God works it in you. That's Philippians. So what Paul is telling the Philippians is, even your salvation, your walk, your Christian life, it's in his hands. Now he's not saying, so just lie in bed all day. He's saying, work out your salvation. Do things like rejoice and love your enemies. Like Paul is doing, even though they've got him in jail. Show honor to people. Don't be anxious. Support people that are servants, like verse 2, chapter 4. So we do things, we're active, but we do those things not thinking in our minds that, oh my goodness, if I don't do this right, it's going to completely derail God's plan. The worst question I keep getting as a pastor is, Pastor, how do I make sure that I'm in God's will? Man, you don't. You think you can derail God's will? You, you think God establishes a plan and you can go and turn a knob and, and God's up there in heaven like, whoa, 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 where's this going? No. He's sovereign. We're not. So what we need to do to rejoice is to stop acting like we have control, stop acting like we're little sovereign beings and instead surrender that to God and that allows you to rejoice. When you rejoice in his reign 
You rejoice in his sovereignty. And even when he makes decisions that disrupt your faith, why cancer? Why a loss of a job? We may not know in that scenario. But you trust the God who was good enough to send his son to take death for you on a cross? Romans 5, he demonstrated his love by sending his son to die for you while you were still a sinner? A God that loves you enough to do that, you can trust. So he doesn't explain every single, so I'm sorry, look, you're going to have to have this disease and you're probably going to go a little early. It's going to be hard for your family, but here's why I made this decision. He's not going to do that. Here's what he does. The gospel. You deserve death. Jesus took death for you. Why in the world would God ever do that? Because he loves. He proves it on the cross, so he doesn't have to prove it in every scenario. In the hospital room, you don't cling to why cancer. You cling to why the cross. I didn't deserve the cross. You bet. That God loves you that much, and that's still the same God that's in control in the hospital room, in your office when you're getting fired, in your house when you're arguing with your spouse. When you get that phone call from your kid and you're, you're worried sick about this child's foolish decisions and you wish you could do something about it and you can't and you're at the end of your rope and God's saying, I'm over it. I'm over it. Take it to me. Rejoice. And my peace will guard your heart and your mind. Let's pray. Father, it's easy to listen to the words but it's hard to make the adjustment in our hearts to completely surrender to you a good and holy and wise, perfect God who's over all things, who sees all things, knows all things, and nothing in this world disrupts your plan. Nothing in this world confuses you. It confuses us. doesn't worry you. And so because it doesn't worry you and our lives are in your hands, Help us to not worry. Help us to not have anxiety. And help us to do joy by rejoicing in you and in your sovereign reign. And we ask that as a result of that, you would protect and guard the peace in our hearts in Christ Jesus, the loving Savior, who died for us to make it happen. We ask it in his name. Amen. Amen.